0: Welcome to the Weekend Message from Mariner's Church, Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Go, if you would, to the book of Matthew. We are going to get into some good stuff this morning. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll start. Matthew 18 is where we'll end up. Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we will put the scriptures on the screen for you. But we are meandering our way Uh, through this record of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, written by a very Jewish man to a very Jewish audience, arguing that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And counter to all expectations, this Messiah comes... Subtly, This Messiah comes um, to suffer. This Messiah comes in humility. His glory will be found not in the triumph over his enemies, but in his suffering at their hands. And he has to constantly teach the inverted nature of his kingdom to his followers. And there are certain points when you read him, there are certain points that he repeats over and over and over and over because I guess he thinks they're very central. This is one of those points. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he's teaching his disciples what prayer looks like in his kingdom. And prayer doesn't look like stringing a bunch of meaningless words together thinking you'll impress God that way. And prayer doesn't look like a boasting of your personal piety before God as if he'll be impressed that way. Prayer looks like this. Matthew 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which means holy be your name. May your name be honored. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, what is the one thing this prayer assumes you're going to do when you pray it? Besides praying the prayer, forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive our debtors. Right? There's one sort of implicit connection that's made between loving God and loving neighbor. Namely, that in the same way that God forgives you, you're to forgive other people. And just in case we miss that part, Jesus goes on into the part nobody else memorizes. We memorized the part we just read. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours now, that's interesting. What could that possibly mean? Go to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus, in this passage, is talking about what happens when two disciples of his disagree, when one of them sins against another. And I know you're shocked to find this out. I know this is st- it staggers the imagination, but Christians can screw up every now and again. I know. I know it doesn't happen here, but back then... Disciples of Jesus sometimes were idiots. And what they would do is they would sin against each other. And Jesus was actually teaching them how you handle that. And believe it or not, it actually involves going to the person that offended you and not to other people. I mean, it just it's a ridiculous concept, I know. Peter is the oldest of the disciples. And as the oldest, he is usually the mouthpiece. And as the mouthpiece, he's usually wrong. Um, Peter is coming to Jesus, and he asks a very Jewish question. He says, verse 21, Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, you have to understand how magnanimous Peter was thinking he was being in this. The rabbis of the day taught that three times was the limit. Literally, I can pull quotes out of rabbinic teaching that say up to once, twice, three times a lady. I mean, once, twice, three times you forgive. Uh, Some of the younger kids are going, does Lady Gaga sing that? I don't recognize it. Uh, Once, twice, three times you forgive, and the fourth time you don't. Peter takes the three-time allowance, doubles it, and then in a very Jewish way, adds one, because the number seven represents completion. And he says, Rabbi... Contrary to the lesser rabbis of the day, we're to forgive up to seven times, right? And you can just hear the, this is the right answer. I expect some affirmation from Jesus. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or other translations will have it, 70 times seven times. Now, there's a whole bunch of sevens going on, but what you need to know is that this is a Jewish way of saying however many times somebody sins against you is however many times you're supposed to forgive them. And 77 isn't arbitrary, by the way. It comes from Genesis 4. You can, overachievers, you can look that up later. Now, Jesus responds by saying, your seven is paltry. 70 times 7, which is like perfection times perfection, or 77 times, or however your Bible translates it. It's a lot, right? This was very contrary to the understanding of the day. So Jesus then tells a parable to illustrate this. Verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, the image, of course, is that of a king who's got books, credits, debits, And he's flipping through his books one day, and he realizes there's a dude that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, if you were in the first century and you heard 10,000 talents, you've got to understand how big a number that is. Okay, so let's do a little math. One day of work was equal to one denarius. Okay, so say that with me. One day of work was equal to one denarius. Andy, did you say it? Okay, very quietly, but you said it. 6,000 denarii was equal to one talent. 6,000 days of work was equal to one talent. So 10,000 talents was 60 million days of work. Does that sound like a lot to you? So, gentlemen, welcome. Of course you did. I, I welcome, I welcome your attendance here. You could have come in that direction, but you know it was probably more fun going that way. <laughs> so Jesus's point isn't that this is a lot of money. His point is this is a ridiculously absurd, unrepayable, astronomical amount of money. It's like if the IRS called me one day and said. Mike, you owe $100 billion. <laughs> okay, you could have said $200 billion and I still would feel this. I mean, it's just so not even in the realm of possibility. So Jesus' original audience would have been going, it's impossible for a servant to even get that indebted in the first century to somebody. Now, according to the books, whenever you were owed a debt that somebody couldn't pay, there was a debtor's prison, and that you could put them in prison, confiscate their property, uh, until their debt was repaid. That's what the king has the right to do. Instead, though, chapter 18, verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, was the man lying about his ability to repay back? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is utterly no way you could repay this debt. So, the first part of the sentence is the authentic part. It's a dude that's trapped, his back is against the wall, and all he can say is, Be patient with me. In Greek, it reads, Be big hearted towards me. In other words, he's asking the king to absorb the debt himself. Verse 27. The servant's master, the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, where did the debt go? Did it just disappear? Who ate the debt? King did. Who's out 10,000 talents? The king. Who paid the price for the debt? The king. So the king puts the books aside and extends mercy to the servant. You tracking with me so far? Very exciting, I know. But when that servant, we'll call him servant number one. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, servant number two. For those of you keeping score at home. He found one of his fellow servants, number two, who owed him a hundred denarii. How many days of work is that? One hundred. Is that repayable? Yes. Jesus is making a point between an unrepayable debt and a repayable debt. Okay, That becomes central to understanding the story. But when servant number one went out, he found servant number two, who had owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. Servant number two fell to his knees and begged servant number one, Be big-hearted with me, and I will pay back everything. Now, in this case, the servant could repay the debt. And he uses the exact same phrase that servant number one used with the king. But servant number one refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When other servants saw this, they were outraged and went and told the king everything that had happened. Then the master called servant number one in, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Notice, he doesn't say, I canceled the debt because you promised to repay me. Instead, he says, I canceled it because you asked me to. You begged me to. You see that? Is this sounding a little bit like the gospel of Jesus, perhaps? You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master, the king, handed over him and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed, which was when? Never. And then Jesus adds this very comforting encouragement. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. That's very helpful. Now, what do we do with this? Let's get the story in view. There was a king who had books, and he comes across a servant who owes him an absolutely staggering amount of money, 60 million days worth of work. The wages that you would garner from that is what was owed. The servant, realizing he can't pay, simply begs, to be let off the hook. He makes a promise to repay, but the original audience would have laughed at this because there was no way he could repay. The king shuts the books because according to the books, he had every right to imprison the man for the rest of his life, his family, his property, to take it all. He had every right, but he closes the books in order to show mercy, he eats the debt himself in order to extend this grace. Now, the parable turns on the idea that the king isn't the only one who has books, right? The servant has books. So here are the servant's books, they're much smaller. And he comes across somebody who owes him money, but in this case, it is a repayable sum. Servant number one is now given the opportunity to do exactly what the king had done for him, to close the books and to eat the debt. But instead, he says, you owe me a 100, I will make you pay a 100. He chokes the man, sends him to prison. Now, Jesus' warning at the end of the parable can be translated like this. The king found out that servant number one insisted on playing by the books with servant number two. Therefore, the king says to servant number one, if it's the books you want to play by, then I will play by the books. You see, the gospel is abandoning the ledger system altogether. Not just for you, but towards others. And Jesus simply says, if you insist on playing by the books with other people, then that is how God will treat you. Another way of saying this is that Only those who truly understand what it is to have sinned against a holy God and to embrace his forgiveness and to be exhilaratingly free by his grace are those then, even though the process of forgiveness is hard, will ultimately be brought to the place where they can extend the same thing they've received. But for those who have no concept of God's grace or his greatness, who have no trouble looking at God and saying, be merciful to me, but then not extending mercy to anybody else, it just shows those people have never truly understood or encountered the true mercy of God to begin with. Because loving God and loving your neighbor are two sides of the same coin. Neither is optional. So, Jesus... Tells a story about a king who forgave a servant. Now, don't read into this, okay, so I put my faith in Jesus, but I haven't forgiven somebody, so I guess I'm not saved, so I have to forgive somebody in order to receive salvation. You're making this say something he's not saying. He's talking about what it means to follow him in his kingdom. And he's telling a story that is fleshed out all throughout the rest of the New Testament. What are the ethical obligations you have as a follower of Jesus? To reenact everything God has done for you. End of story. Why should you be generous? He's been generous to you. Why should you love? He loved you first. Why should you forgive? Because you've been forgiven. See, this is the difference between the gospel of Jesus and self-help is that self-help is literally you picking yourself up by your bootstraps and trying harder. And we can do some of that. The gospel is that God moves first without us climbing up to be approved of. And then, under his grace, empowered by his presence in our lives, we reenact in small ways what we ourselves have been the beneficiaries of. It's a beautiful picture. So this translates all over the place. Now, how many of you enjoy forgiving people? Okay, a few of you. I don't like it at all. I like punishing people. I like seeing them pay for their mistakes. So this is going to stand for a wound, all right, that Tim Keller has given me. Tim Keller, a nice, nice man. So this is purely hypothetical. But let's say Tim Keller hurts me. He disappoints me. He says something that hurts my feelings. He slanders me. I mean, any. you guys all have these people in your lives. But here's a wound. This ticks me off. It hurts me. It disappoints me. And now it's stuck in my heart. And you've got some options as to what you do with this thing, right? Option number one it's to throw it back at him, right? That's called revenge. He hurts me, so I hurt him. And isn't that the easiest way, right? Somebody cut you off in traffic, I shall let them know I did not approve of their cutting me off. Somebody, somebody writes me a nasty email, I'll write them a nasty email and then put a little smiley face at the end just to soften it a little bit, Right? In our marriages, married folks, your spouse says something a bit ridiculous. What's the nat- isn't, the mo- isn't it the most natural thing just to look at your spouse and go, you know what? I understand you're having a bad day. It's totally okay. <laughs> or is it to pay back? So, the one, you've got a wound. You're hurt, you're angry, you're disappointed. Option number one is to zing it back at the person. Option number two, for those of us that are more passively aggressive, is to not punish the person, but to hold on to it so that it starts leaking out towards other people. So instead of hurting him, I hurt this gentleman. Or I hurt these folks. Oh, he saved a coffee. That's right. you got to stay awake if you're going to be close. He did. He shifted coffee cups, caught it, scooped it back. Water polo? No? It was solid. Now, have any of you ever done this? You've had a bad day at work or a bad day at school, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in an argument with your roommate or your brother or sister or with your spouse. And all of a sudden it dawns on you at some point that I'm really worked up about this dumb little thing they did, and perhaps I'm really upset about something else. Any of you ever do this? Any of, it, any of you have just, it kind of spills over? So option number one is to punish. Option number two is to hang on to it and not punish the person, but other people around you get punished. Option number three is just to keep hold of it and let it define you. I'm a victim. I deserved it. I can't ever get rid of this thing. Now, if you're like me, I use all three of those. And what's Jesus say? Forgive. Now, the word forgive means to send away. It means to put away. It means to dismiss. It means to let it go. It means to yield your right to judgment. Now, because... Forgiveness is so misunderstood, I want to clarify a little bit about what we're talking about. Mondo, could you fire up the sweet PowerPoint? A man named R.T. Kendall wrote a very helpful book. That's funny. All right, D'Angelo, fire it up. Did you know I was going to do that ahead of time and that's why you wrote that? I mean, otherwise, that was the quickest thing ever. A man named R.T. Kendall writes a book, and here's what he says, and this is really important. Don't take notes, because if you want it, you can email me. Forgiveness does not mean that you approve of what they did, excuse what they did, justify what they did. There's this idea that forgiving somebody means I just have to say, ah, it really wasn't so bad. That is not true. God doesn't minimize our sin against him and still finds a way to forgive us, right? Right? So when you forgive other people, this has nothing to do with saying, ah, it's just not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. And for some of us, we have massive things. We've been abused. We were molested. Uh, we uh, were taken against our will. We've been robbed. We've been beaten, slandered. Our, our spouses, our families have disappointed I mean, some of us have massive things. Others of us just suffer from low-grade resentment. I mean, I've prayed for folks where they just say, you know what, I'm just, I am just—I have this low-grade resentment towards my spouse because they're just not everything I wanted them to be. So it can be huge. It can be seemingly not huge. Forgiveness does not mean you pretend that you're not hurt. My parents divorced when I was nine. This was back when divorce wasn't so common. So I was literally the first kid in my school to have divorced parents. I, um, throughout my teenage years, throughout my 20s, which ended a couple of days ago, (laughs) I insisted that this was actually a good thing and I suffered no ill effects. It was no big deal. It It wasn't a big deal that there was an affair and there was this massive blowout of my marriage and I was there when the other spouse found out and it wasn't a big deal, I would say. Then I got married and all of a sudden... I start seeing massive issues in my life. Now, I know this will shock you. (laughs) That, oh my goodness, this had a massive effect on me. And I thought I'd forgiven my parents for this, but it wasn't until I felt the full weight of what had happened that I was really able to forgive them. So forgiveness is not pretending. Forgiveness is acknowledging the weight of what was done. Forgiveness does not mean that you pardon what they did. In other words, there might be legal consequences that stick with them. We don't interrupt those. Consequences, as all parents know, are God's favorite way of correcting foolishness, right? So it doesn't mean we excuse the consequences of their actions. It doesn't mean that we're automatically reconciled to them. In other words, and this is so critical, you guys, reconciliation takes two. I've seen Jesus resurrect marriages out of infidelity. I have seen Jesus bring about forgiveness over family dysfunction. I have seen him do amazing things. But it takes two. And forgiveness means regardless of whether or not they're willing, you're willing. Because forgiveness is setting somebody free and finding out ultimately it was you. You recognize that whether or not they are sorry, whether or not they ever repent, whether or not they ever apologize is immaterial to your forgiving of them. And the relationship you have with them might not ever go back to the way it was. That's okay. Sometimes there are serial offenders who need to be stayed away from. It also doesn't mean that you forget what happened. It's remembering what happened that actually leads to true forgiveness. And there are cases, like I said just a moment ago, where literally I need to keep my distance. Now, what does forgiveness mean? Next slide, D'Angelo. Forgiveness is based entirely on how God treats us. So however God forgives us, is how we're to forgive others, so that means we acknowledge the seriousness of it. Does forgiving somebody, is that a form of grief? Absolutely. Because if forgiveness is yielding my right to get even, how hard is that? Who has to eat that debt a little bit? I do, right? I have to forgive even if their life goes on swimmingly. I have to forgive if they never get caught I, I mean, somebody said last night it was it was a great line um, bitterness staying staying angry at somebody is drinking poison and thinking that you're killing them okay Forgiveness is being aware of what someone has done. Forgiveness is choosing to keep no record of wrongs. now this is different than forgetting forgetting. Like, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget, but forgiveness does mean that I don't define them purely and exclusively in terms of their sin against me. So, my wife has a great memory, and I do lots of dumb things. That is a bad combination. <laughs> so, I've learned the hard way that my lovely sweetie pie, who will be here next service, and I will not tell this story, <sighs> will bring to this incident incidences previously from four years ago yeah and then you did that and then you did that and I remember this time now I thought we were done with those so I've now learned to ask my precious lovely bride honey are we done with this and by done I mean it's no longer ammunition for further arguments we've had to learn to do that right Because it's easy to forgive somebody, but then to just subtly remind them down the road. It's refusing to punish them. And punish can look a lot of different ways. Have you ever seen somebody you can't stand praised in front of other people? And then there's a part of you that just wants to let everybody know they're not that great. (laughs) Not gossiping about what they did. You know, I mean, you know, I've really forgiven Tim, guys, because Tim, he really hurt me. But, you know, I've forgiven him. And guess what I've just done? Talked about Tim. It's an inner condition. It's the absence of bitterness. And it can also involve forgiving God. I know that sounds a little crazy. But for those of you that have really suffered, you have to answer the question, why did God allow it? He could have stopped it. What did he allow it? Now, we can speculate. But at the end of the day, some of us actually need to release our claim that God justify himself to us. Now, how easy is this? Zero. Not at all. But Jesus doesn't make it sound optional, does he? So, let's do a little bookkeeping, shall we? You know that sheet of paper that was in your bulletin? Take it out Fold it in half. Oh, but it's already folded for you. And tear it into two. Right now, all together. All right, now. Here is the promise you will make to me right now. Okay, say these words. I will not look on my neighbor's paper. Say it. May the Lord curse me, be it ever so severely. You don't have to say that part. All right. If you're married, you cannot look at your spouse's paper. If you have children sitting next to you, you cannot look at their paper. Do you understand me? We have two sheets because God speaks of two debts. A debt we have to him and a debt others have for us. Let's talk about the debt we have to him. I want you, using abbreviation if necessary, to spend a little bit of time talking about your sin, writing it down. Now, if you can't think of any, we'll start with lying, okay? So let me give you some examples of friends that I have and their issues, all right? Pride, greed, if you need a pencil, let one of our ushers know, okay? I'm serious, if you're looking at me, that means you're not writing, And I will look at you with disdain. Okay, so start thinking. If God had books on you, they would include what? And let's just talk about some examples, all right? So we got pride. How about selfishness? How about greed? How about ambition for your name to be great? How about using other people? How about sexual sin in action? In thought? In word? How about borrowing something that wasn't yours without asking? How about the breaches of integrity on income tax? How about not always having your yes be yes and your no be no? How about rejoicing at the misfortune of others? How about envy or jealousy? Some people are still looking at me. Yeah, some of you just look down. You're not writing anything. You're just not going to look at me anymore, which is fine. If you don't want to experience the deep, forgiving, healing power of Jesus, that's fine. That's your choice. (laughs) Shall Shall we keep naming? How about drunkenness? How about slander? How about some habits that you know are wrong and yet they're okay? That's my way to cope. How about the mean words you've said to other people? How about the ways that you have given worship to things other than God? How about the idolatry of living according to your preferences? Now this is just Tim's list. I borrowed from last night. (laughs) <laughs> All right, we'll add projection onto mine. <laughs> All right, you got, a, you got a few? So, you've got your list. And if you're new to the Jesus thing, the message of the gospel is that there is a king who has books On each one of us. And who chooses to pay the debt himself. So that the books can be closed. And he can extend us grace and mercy. Literally Paul uses this image. The written record of wrongs. Like the exhaustive list of your entire life of every thought and every word and every action, the good you should have done but didn't, the bad you shouldn't have done but did. That whole list was nailed to the cross of Jesus so that it no longer has power to condemn you. Thank you, Andy. That is good news. What we celebrate in naming this list isn't our shame or our failure. These are no longer words that fundamentally identify us in the eyes of Jesus of Nazareth. This whole thing's been swapped out. And the point of salvation isn't just that we get forgiveness, but it's that as forgiven people, we now live lives of grace and holiness Extending to others what we've received. That's the good news. We in on that. You've got another sheet. Put list of sins away for a second. Or if you want to trade them with somebody near you, that's fine. (laughs) Now, this piece of paper, I want you to have a list of the people who've hurt you. I want you to have a list of the things that you've been called that have stuck with you. A list of the people who've abandoned you, betrayed you, lied about you, disappointed you, cheated you, stolen from you, have taken credit for things that were rightly yours, have brought harm to you or your family, who have physically harmed you. The list of low-grade resentment towards people or that people... that the other people, excuse me, have towards you. You can just sense this person doesn't like you. Not quite sure why. For a lot of us, the shocking thing is the folks on this list are folks that are pretty close to us, right? So a spouse who left, a son or daughter who said things, a mother or father, who didn't say things that they should have said. So the question, and whether you're writing, we all have these folks, would you agree? So you have this wound, and what's the easiest thing to do to these people? Give it back. Because if you don't, oh, it'll hurt others, or you'll define yourself by it. The invitation of Jesus is to extend to them what you yourself have received. Because you don't, you can never repay your debt, right? So it's not like you can go before Jesus and say, Hey, dude, I'll be a good person, and I will make this up to you. That's not how it works. He forgives the debt simply because you begged Him to. Not because you promised to repay But we're left with all these people. How do we forgive them? By starting with this list. Because I don't know about you, i followed Jesus for a while, and I actually think the list of my sins against him isn't as bad as the list of your sins against him. There is this self-righteous thing that starts creeping in And I actually believe that I don't need his grace as much as I did when I first started following him. And that's a lie. Jesus talks about those who've been forgiven much learn to love much. And those who've been forgiven little, even though they've been forgiven much, but think they've only been forgiven little. They love little. So how is it that you learn to actually release the debts that people have for you? By reminding yourself, of the forgiveness and mercy God has shown you. Now, it sounds easy, doesn't it? Is that a one-time decision? Nope. Sometimes it's every 10 minutes. But this is where it starts. So here's what I want to do. We're going to celebrate communion today. Seems like an appropriate thing, wouldn't you agree? If you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, first of all, we're just so stinking excited you're here. But secondly, don't ever feel pressure to do this stuff. No one's counting crackers as they go through the aisles. Okay? For the rest of us, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold them as they come by. And I want you to take that first sheet of paper, the one with sin on it. And I want you to hold the bread and cup in one hand and hold the sin in the other. And then we're going to take communion together. And at one point, I just want you to crumple it up. And I just want you to put it away. It's, we're just reenacting theological truth that it's been dismissed by Jesus. And then after we've taken communion, I want you to pull out the other sheet with the, uh, with the names on them. And I want you to ask God what he would have you do with them. Make sense? Make sense? Okay, ushers, come on down. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.